it's a joy for me to be here. I, uh, it's kind of a coming home. My mother, my mother was a professor of education, philosopher of education, and she gave a talk in Singapore in 1976. And we spent the summer traveling and visiting throughout Asia. So I first came to Hong Kong when I was 13 in 1976, and it's great to be back uh, as a San Franciscan, part of the Pacific Rim. It's nice to be on this side of the Pacific. And I sensed right away when I got here that I was back in the Pacific from Rome. There's, there's something about the air and the salt in the air. So Thomas Aquinas on friendship, human and divine. In 1595, when an upstart player named William Shakespeare was writing a fantastical comedy in English verse called A Midsummer's Night's Dream for the London stage. On the opposite side of the globe, in the southern city of Nanchang, an equally remarkable man named Matteo Ricci was composing an essay on friendship in the form in, in the formal diction of classical Chinese. So begins, that was all a quotation, so begins Timothy Billings' masterful introduction to Matteo Ricci's essay on friendship, which Billings adds quickly turned into the late Ming equivalent of a bestseller. The reason Ricci chose this topic to introduce himself to the Chinese Confucian elites is that whether it's the 13th century or the 16th century or the 21st century, East or West, the nature of friendship continues to haunt us. What does it mean to be a friend? What is or should be the role of friends in our lives? How do we discern whether someone is a true friend and what type of person must I be to become someone's true friend? What specifically are the actions that are proper to friendship? Continuing in this tradition of reflection and exchange between East and West, I would like this morning to consider Thomas Aquinas' understanding of friendship because of the unique way his thought both respects and synthesizes Christian and non-Christian insights into friendship. Specifically, and this is a claim that not everyone would accept, specifically, Aquinas employs the thought uh, of the non-Christian Greek philosopher Aristotle and his insights into the dynamic human, uh, into the dynamics of human friendship to offer a more satisfying Augustinian account of Christian friendship. Now, here's why not everyone would accept what I've just said. Uh, uh, so a possible objection. Uh, the objection might go something like this. Thomas uses Aristotle to offer an Augustinian account of friendship. Hold on, the objector would say. I thought Augustinians and Aristotelians belonged to opposing schools of thought. It is true that among historians and philosophers, it has often been popular to divide medieval thinkers between Aristotelians and Augustinians and to list Thomas Aquinas among the ardent Aristotelians. 
This categorization is understandable because Aquinas did champion Aristotle's philosophy and he wrote masterful commentaries on his works. But the popular dichotomy between Aristotelians and Augustinians too often hides the way Thomas Aquinas was also deeply influenced by Augustine. Indeed, a careful reading of Aquinas's works reveals that Aquinas often draws on Aristotle to explain more adequately an Augustinian insight. So Aristotle at the service of Augustine. This is especially true in the case of friendship. So now to understand Aquinas's value, I think we need to spend some time looking at Augustine's achievement and some of the things that he struggled with. So Augustine on charity and friendship. St. Augustine had a gift for friendship as Carolyn White, who wrote a beautiful book on fourth century uh, Christian notions of friendship. As Carolyn White succinctly uh, explains, quote, throughout Augustine's long life, 354 to 430, friendship was to play an important part both in his everyday relations with others and in his thought. Augustine, main, uh, end of the quote. So Augustine maintained a wide network of friendships uh, throughout the vast expanse of the Roman Empire uh, by the frequent exchange of long and very generous letters. He also lived out his ministry first as a priest and then as a bishop by living in community with a circle of disciples and friends. And he uh, lived his ministry uh, in collaboration with this community of friends. In the Confessions, Augustine celebrates the quote, bright path of friendship in language very uh, reminiscent of what uh, Il Madu, what uh, Matteo Ricci will say, because Matteo Ricci presents his ideas as presenting the Tao of friendship. And here we have Augustine talking about the bright Tao of friendship, right? The via. Uh, of uh, amicitiae, so the bright way of friendship. And he paraphrases Cicero to describe friendship as, quote, a delightful bond uniting many souls into one. So notice Augustine has an idea of communities of friendship, not one-on-one -on -one friendship necessarily. Um, toward the end of his life, he even placed in his masterpiece, The City of God, book 19, this rhetorical question, quote, what gives us consolation in this human society filled as it is with errors and troubles, if not the sincere loyalty and mutual love of true and good friends? So he says this after he's seen the sack of Rome and all the other troubles of North Africa, the violence, and then he sees what's coming, uh, the consolation of friends. Nevertheless, even with this celebration late in his life of friendship, Augustine came to believe that his early friendships had been disordered and that the sorrows he felt at the death of his friends revealed that he had not loved his friends rightly. Like all great artists, Augustine was drawn to the beauty and goodness of creation and of all the good things in it but also deeply troubled by how fragile and fleeting these good things were, including friendships. 
influenced by the Neoplatonic philosopher Plotinus, Augustine saw the Christian life as a drama of desire. We desire happiness and fulfillment and search restlessly for it, ultimately discovering peace and happiness only in God. I got to put out my watch here to see my time. So the drama of desire. We desire happiness and fulfillment and search restlessly for it, ultimately discovering peace and happiness only in God. Augustine famously begins the confessions by proclaiming to his God, quote, you have made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. The good things of this life speak to us of God. He has beautiful passages about that. Uh, we are not uh, the Lord, but he passed this way, the creation says to us. Uh, and John of the Cross will pick that up in his poetry. Uh, so the good things in this life speak to us of God, but they are not God. As wayfarers via Torres, we are on a journey of desire, whereby if we desire rightly, we are led to our heavenly homeland, the patria. Augustine will thus affirm that, quote, the whole life of a good Christian is a holy desire. We are called to love eternal things in one way and temporal things in another. In On Christian Doctrine, Augustine articulates this contrast as follows, quote, some things are to be enjoyed, others to be loved, adding that those things that are to be enjoyed make us blessed. Those things that are to be, uh, those, uh, those things that are to be used help us as it were, sustain us as we move toward blessedness in order that we may attain and cling to those things that make us blessed." Unquote. Augustine defines enjoyment and use in the following terms. To enjoy something is to cling to it with love for its own sake. To use something, however, is to employ it in obtaining that which you love, provided that it is worthy of love. Augustine affirms, not surprisingly, that we are to enjoy God. In his early work, it's a joy God alone, while we are to use all other things as ordered toward the enjoyment of God. So to enjoy God, to use everything else. Where does this contrast leave friendship? How should we love our friends? Should we enjoy them or should we use them? Augustine knows that what Augustine knows here is that we should want for our friends the same thing we want for ourselves, union with God for all eternity in heaven. But how should we characterize this love? Although Augustine is tempted to place even our friends among those things that we should use and even ourselves, he ultimately sides with the notion that we should enjoy God and quote, enjoy one another in God. And he's, he gets that terminology from St. Paul's letter to Philemon. Uh, so to enjoy God and to enjoy one another in God. This is reflected in his definition of charity. So here's how he defines charity. 
I call charity the spirit's motion toward enjoying God for himself and enjoying oneself and one's neighbor for God. So I'll repeat that because it's key. I call charity the spirit's motion toward enjoying God for himself and enjoying oneself and one's neighbor for God. Christian charity thus moves us to enjoy God and our friends in God and for God. Augustine came to realize, however, that this solution revealed another problem in his vision of the Christian life as a drama of desire. You can make the argument that as Augustine spent more time reading the scriptures and involved in pastoral ministry with the faithful of North Africa, he began to see that his Neoplatonic vision didn't correspond either to the scriptural message or to his own pastoral experience. So we'll get back to that. So Augustine came to realize that this solution revealed another problem in his vision of the Christian life as a drama of desire. Augustine's contemporaries seemed to have had difficulty difficulty understanding what Augustine meant by enjoying something for itself. So let's look at this for a second. What does it mean to enjoy something for itself? Truly deum propter ipsum, to enjoy God for himself. Well, it could mean that we're making a contrast between the thing we're enjoying and something that's there that, that helps us enjoy it. So for example, uh, uh, salt and pepper, a garnish, we don't enjoy them for themselves, but we use them in the service of the meal that we're enjoying. So no one eats salt just for salt. They put salt on food so that it enhances the flavor of the food. So what they are really desiring is food. But wait a second, in the end, those things that we enjoy, the one being loved is ourselves. So does that mean that we're supposed to love God like we love a good meal? So there's something that's difficult for Augustine's contemporaries to understand. Now, uh, the reason this is difficult is that from the perspective of Plotinus's conception of love as an, as an ecstatic force, that leads us out of yourself to the service of others, Augustine seems to envision the enjoyment of God as a self-forgetful union with him, where we begin to will what he wills, want for ourselves and want for others what God wants for them, and in this life, to work towards those things. So Plotinus in the Aeneids has this idea, and he, he's influenced by Plato, that as you are drawn out of yourself by the love of the true, the good, and the beautiful, you are actually drawn into service of others. And especially when you attain what even Plotinus will say that he only fleetingly in this life ever attained, when you attain this kind of mystic union with the one, you are so filled with a kind of charity or mercy misericordia for your contemporaries that you turn back in their service and he gives the example that plato gives in the laws of minos who goes back and makes laws for his his little city state out of an excess of his 
uh, union with the good. So this is Augustine's, this is presupposed in his definition of charity as a motion of the spirit towards the enjoyment of God for himself. The problem was, let's say you're one of Augustine's parishioners and you're hearing this homily for the first time and you haven't, you, you know, you're educated, you work for the state, but you've never studied Plato or Plotinus and you hear him saying that you should enjoy God for himself, that causes, that can raise some questions. So Augustine himself seems to have addressed this uh, later in life when he's doing a commentary on 1 John. That's important because what, does we, what do we find in 1 John? Twice, John tells us, this is the first epistle to John. Twice, especially in chapter four, uh, John says, Deus caritas est, God is love, agape. Um, but if God is love, how can love be a form of desire? That would imply a lack in God. We desire what we don't have. So Augustine began to see that his platonic vision of love needed to be reshaped. And so here's what he says here. We should not love men the way we hear gluttons say, I love thrushes, little parentheses here. The Romans had a passion for those little birds. So like in North America, the common thrush is a, uh, the American robin. Uh, in Europe, the, the, the merrow, the blackbird, is the cousin of the American robin. So it's, it's, you know, it's a fairly big bird, but there's no meat on it. But they loved the, the little meat on these birds. Horace has a whole poem celebrating how you could use up all of your fortune just on eating these birds. Anyway, we should not love men the way we hear gluttons say, I love thrushes. What is it you want for them only to kill and eat them? He says he loves, but his love for the birds leads to their disappearance. His love amounts to this, destruction. Everything we love as a meal we thus love in order that it be consumed and we renew. Should we love men this way as if they were for our consumption? This is a recurring, a recurring question. In the screw tape letters, C.S. Lewis talks about, it shows, uh, has a little exchange where um, screw tape, uh, uh, Wormwood has been involved. Wormwood's the nephew demon that Screwtape is writing, writing letters to, trying to help him on his way to being a good demon. And he was involved in a failed coup against the faction that uh, Screwtape is a part of. And Screwtape describes the pleasure he's going to have in consuming Wormwood. And this is so Lewis clearly sees disordered love as a form of of demonic desire. And so this is what Augustine came to see that if you don't have a platonic notion of ecstatic love, his early work could be misinterpreted. And so what does Augustine do? Augustine turns to Cicero. Now he had already used Cicero in his definition of charity when he says, I call charity the spirit's motion. That came from Cicero towards enjoying God for himself. Now he starts to develop a notion of charity that involves voluntas and involves benevolencia. So uh, 
this par this paragraph where Augustine asks, should we treat others the way we treat thrushes? The answer in the way the Latin is constructed is clearly no. Um, but as I've already mentioned, uh, those who are not initiated into Neoplatonic thought could be forgiving for posing the question of Augustine. To solve this problem, Augustine turned to Cicero's vocabulary of friendship. Charity for one's neighbor, Augustine explains, is not like the glutton's consumptive desire, but a type of friendship. So here, to solve the problem of the vocabulary of charity, he draws on Cicero's understanding of human friendship. Quote, there is a certain friendship of benevolence, amicitia benevolentiae, which leads us sometimes to render service to those whom we love. The focus here is not so much on desire as on goodwill that passes into visible action. Augustine explains that even when there is nothing you can do for your beloved, the goodwill itself suffices. So in the case of God, we can't actually do any good for God because God doesn't need anything. But nonetheless, the, the true friend wills the good of the beloved. As Augustine grew older, therefore, he began to modify his theology of charity, moving it from a version of Neoplatonic desire to portray it as akin to Cicero's conception of friendship a friendship that entails both goodwill, benevolencia, and good deeds, uh, beneficence, on behalf of the one whom we love. At this point, it will be helpful to note that Augustine had no uh, direct access to Aristotle's philosophy of love. We can forget how late it was in the Latin West that we had books eight and nine of the Nicomachean Ethics. So the only books that Augustine had of Aristotle in, in Latin were the logical works. He, they didn't have, in Augustine's time, they didn't have any of the Nicomachean ethics. They didn't have the uh, Eudymian ethics. They didn't have any of that stuff. So he's getting Aristotle through Cicero and through a few others, through um, uh, Seneca, but it's always kind of indirect and influenced by much other thought. Aristotle is not alone in not having uh, books eight and nine of the ethics. The Latin West would not have access to books eight and nine on friendship of Aristotle's Nicomachean ethics until well into the 13th century. The same is true for book two of Aristotle's rhetoric, uh, where Aristotle defines love, the love that is proper to friendship, philane. What is the act of feline to love with the love of friendship? They didn't have access to that book until just a few years before Aquinas was writing the second part of the Summa. Uh, uh, it is here, uh, so that's true for the whole Latin West. So it's here that Aquinas' thought becomes so important. Aquinas was among the first to have access to, uh, to all of the Nicomachean ethics and to all of the rhetoric. And that allowed him to solve problems that had been festering. Because the description I've given you of this struggle to articulate charity as more than just desire comes back with a vengeance in the 12th century. So a little note about the 12th century. Scholars describe the 12th century, the century before Aquinas, as 
the 12th century Renaissance. Two things emerged during the 12th century Renaissance. First, the scholastic method in the West. There had been a question and answer method that John uh, of Damascus had used in the Greek East. But this question and answer method doesn't start being applied to theology in the West until the 12th century, the 1100s, around 1120. And you have it occurring in these cities where the, uh, there's an Episcopal see and there's an Episcopal school. And so the little city about 60 miles north and east of Paris, of Lons, or Laon in English, but Lons in French, the Anson of Lons, Anselm of Lons, and uh, his disciples, they start a cathedral school there. And they start asking questions of the received theological text, both of the scriptures and of the fathers. And one of the problems, if you start asking questions of the received tradition, so it's a transition, transition from memorizing texts, memorizing uh, collections of texts from scripture and the fathers, you know, a whole group of texts around faith, a whole group of texts around hope. You have an educational method that's moving from the monastic method of memorization to the scholastic question and answer method uh, that was applying the logical works of Aristotle to theology. And the danger is you may ask a question that you don't know how to answer. The first time that arises, it, arised, uh, it arose among the fathers, but it comes back in the Middle Ages, is the beginning of wisdom is fear of the Lord. But then we also have love is not yet perfect in one who is afraid. So how do you reconcile these two scriptorial, uh, they seem to be contradictory. With the scholastic method, therefore, they posed questions to their tradition, and then they had to develop a theological answer. And there is a very beautiful theological answer that gets, that distinguishes between filial fear, which is to increase, and servile fear, which is to decrease. And that helps you find a synthesis between these two parts of scripture. Well, something very similar happened with regard to charity, and therefore also friendship. Uh, the focus on desire that the monastic traditions had inherited from their reading of Augustine and a very selective reading of Augustine was confronted by the other parts of scripture that portrayed charity more like service. So a, a raging controversy uh, was unleashed during the 12th century, both at the schools and at that other institution of the 12th century Renaissance, white monasticism, the white monks and nuns. Who were the white monks and nuns? These were movements of reform founded by, uh, there was St. Bernard of Clairvaux, St. Norbert, uh, you have a whole group, there was uh, St. Robert, um, St. Bruno. They were the founders of the Cistercians with uh, Bernard, Bruno with the Carthusians, Norbert with, we know them as the Norbertines, with the canon regulars of uh, uh, Premontre. They had some unique features not just the fact that their habits were white, but unlike the Benedictines who normally drew their vocations from children that had been donated to the monastery, because when you have these kind of rural noble families and there's too many children, it was too expensive to find spouses for them. So they would be given to monasteries where they would be educated. And those folks would then grow up to become uh, monks or nuns. 
by the time you get to the 12th century, you have this movement of adult members, adult vocations who have had life in the world, who've been soldiers, lawyers, working at the court, and no love literature, pagan love literature that they've been reading. Uh, it's the other big transition in the 12th century is if in the Carolingian period, all the way up until the end of the uh, 11th century, the texts in Latin that they were reading to learn Latin had been from Virgil's Aeneid for reasons that we don't quite understand. To teach Latin in the 12th century, they were using texts from Ovid. And of course, Ovid was the pagan uh, writer on love and often very disturbing ideas about love, which once again emphasized desire. So the 12th century Renaissance has this crisis over what's the role of desire in charity and friendship and they don't have access to Aristotle's book eight and nine or the rhetoric. But they do the same, they reach the same solution ultimately that Augustine did. They turned to Cicero and they started to develop definitions of charity and friendship drawn from Cicero. And that has a huge influence on Cistercian monasticism and on 12th century scholasticism. That leads us to Aquinas because Aquinas draws on all of this, but he has access to those books of Aristotle. So what's Aristotle's, why is he important? For Aquinas, he sees him as someone who articulates universal human experience. So if you wanna understand how grace works on nature, study someone who understands nature and you'll be able to better understand how grace works on them. So what are the features that Aristotle sees in friendship? It is, the elements of Aristotelian friendship. It's mutually benevolent. Friends will good for their friends. It's mutually beneficent. Friends do good for their friends. This beneficence and benevolence is mutually known. You can't, in the strict sense, have an anonymous friend. It only becomes a true friendship when the benevolence and beneficence is known. But the key insight for Aristotle is that it's founded on a koinonia biu, uh, a communicatio vitae, communion of life. And Aristotle had noted in looking at the way in which people live uh, that wherever there is a kind of communion of life, there can be a friendship because the communion of life is based upon some shared good that is being pursued. So, you, have, you can have a communion of life on people who are collecting stamps or a communion of life in going to uh, drink beer, whatever it may be. And Aristotle sees there seem to be three different types. There's friendship based on the good of pleasure. That's the most unstable because what one person finds pleasurable today, he might not find pleasurable tomorrow. Uh, so, and he says, that's the, the friendships of the young who pursue their pleasures. It's an ephemeral friendship. Then there's the friendship of utility. And you see this in the business world and in government. You cultivate a friend as you're, because you're pursuing the same thing. You're both working in the stock market. And so his ideas and insights can help you. And so you, you are pursuing the same good, commerce, and you, you spend your time together pursuing that good. And so a kind of friendship can be based on that. But that too is uh, 
not as stable as the deepest form, nor is it necessarily uh, good uh, without reserve. So for Aristotle, the truest friendship that's based on the truest communion of life is the friendship of, of those who pursue virtue, moral excellence, arete in, in Aristotle's Greek. Arete is to live according to nature, your human nature, to pursue the true, the good, and the beautiful. In the moral sense, it's the kalos agathos. The Greeks have a very interesting notion that the morally good thing to do, the kalos, is also beautiful, it's a kind of moral beauty, which I think is actually very similar to some forms of Taoist thought. Okay, so it's the, it's the kalos doing, and you learn how to live the kalos, and you learn this in friendship. Now, this is another part of Aristotle that is often neglected. Book nine talks about unequal relative friendships. And later people who are much more as moderns concerned about private or individual friends, friendships between two people. For Aristotle, and you think about the culture he's living in, he's having to educate uh, the elites of Macedonia. Uh, he's, he's preparing uh, Alexander to go conquer the world. These are people who learn everything among their contemporaries and under the mentorship of experts, whether it's learning how to ride a horse, learning how to uh, uh, use a, a sword, uh, or learning how to use a shield, all the different things that they learn. They learn together with the, the, the young men, it's in the, the Greek culture, this was all men, young men, they, the people they're growing up with, they learn these skills together, but under the guidance of mentorship. So there's also the friendship of apprenticeship, which we'll come back to as important. So all this is within Aristotle. Uh, but then the rhetoric. In this key passage of the rhetoric, he tells us, well, what, what is the act of philane? What does it mean to will and to live according to philane? And Aristotle says, the act of philane is to will the good to the other. I'll give you the actual quote. We define friendship and love, so philia and the verb philane, by saying philane, to love, signifies to will to another all that you hold to be good and to do so for the other and not for yourself. Aquinas will synthesize this to say that the act of friendship love is to will the good for the other. Now, this would have helped Augustine tremendously because it's not, the, the whole idea of movement of spirit, the other element that Augustine tried to do later on to give a more adequate notion of charity, he drew on the analogy of weight. My weight is my love. And he saw it as a new weight that we're given. So remember, I began with the quotation uh, from the beginning of the confessions. You have made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until they rest in thee. We discover as we read the confessions, uh, uh, yeah, we have to wait all the way to the end where this inquietas comes from. It's, a, it's the gift of grace. Through grace, we receive a new weight 
And Augustine says, weight is not always downwards, it's also upwards. So uh, the, uh, the water goes down, fire goes up. And he says, my weight is my love. I'm moved uh, where I'm moved by my love. Notice what he's done there. By that time, Augustine's understanding of love is not desire, but principle of desire. The desire flows from the weight. The movement flows from the weight. The weight is deeper. So towards the end of his life, Augustine started to articulate of a pondus. It was a voluntas. It was the principle of both desire and affirmation of the other. And he never really drew out all the implications. My argument is that Aquinas, who read Augustine very carefully, drew out the implications of what Augustine was trying to do. And he was helped in this through the wonderful insights of Aristotle. So first, the pondus meus, the principle of desire. If you go to Aquinas' treatment of love, he has an analogical presentation of the different forms of love. They're all principles of movement. The stone moves to its natural place. The deer longs for flowing streams. And uh, the, the angel loves God. Uh, all of the principles of these movements are uh, a form of love. But things flow from it. The problem that Augustine never was able to understand was the relationship between the act of voluntas, of charity, and desire. What is the role of desire in willing good? That was the other thing that Aquinas, drawing on debates from the 13th century, he was able to articulate. When we will good to another, we're simultaneously doing two things. We're affirming the existence of the other and we're desiring some good for the other. Joseph Pieper describes this where he says, uh, the, the act of loving the other is the celebration of the other. It's good that you exist. It's good that you're in this world. So Aquinas will say the first thing that we will of our, to our beloved is that they exist. And then we will all the other things that promote their existence, that they be in good health, that they uh, are educated so that they know and love the truth, uh, and that they also cultivate and desire virtue. So that willing the good for the other, but there is desire in that because if our beloved has those good things, we celebrate them in joy. If our beloved lacks those things, uh, we desire it for our beloved. And you'd think, oh, he's getting all this from Aristotle. But if you look where he gets this breakup, the different forms of, of desire and joy, it's book 14 of the City of God. So again, drawing on Aristotle for Augustinian uh, reasons. To will the good for the other in a unity of affection. So that's we come to Aquinas. Aquinas saw reading Augustine that he, in his best moments, describes charity as a amicitia benevolentiae. So Aquinas will define 
uh, Caritas. He says, charity is a certain friendship of man for God. Caritas quedem amicitia est hominis apud Deo. A certain friendship of man for God. And another August um, Aristotelian twist. Aristotle considered in his treatment of unequal friendships, whether friendship was possible between man and God in the singular. And he said, no, the distance is too great between humans and man for friendship to exist. And so uh, it would be the life of a God to be able to be uh, a friend of God. Now later, he does come back to this question, but now he's in the plural, whether friendship with the gods is possible. Is well, if such a thing is possible, it would have to be a filial form of friendship, the kind of like the friendship that parents have for their children. When you read Aquinas' development, especially in his commentary on the Gospel of John, we see that the friendship that charity makes possible is filial friendship. In Christ, we become by adoption what Christ is by nature. This leads us back to the other aspect of friendship that is uh, often overlooked in treatments, and that is the friendship of apprenticeship. One of the reasons Aquinas is able to draw so heavily on Augustine's understanding of friendship, he has a, uh, a, a, a Aristotle's understanding of friendship, is he has a clean, keen sense of the ways in which friendship function in a community, uh, both as citizens who are friends one to the other and as citizens in relationship to their elected leaders. All of that is very present to Aristotle and Aquinas draws on it not to have a treatise on friendship, but have a treatise on charity. So the deepest parts of Aquinas' theology of charity are where he sees that in an apprenticeship with Christ, we become configured to Christ. We begin to participate in Christ's life and mission all the way to the school of the cross. Aquinas becomes very attuned to the way in which John's gospel draws on the book of wisdom to present the life of the disciples as apprenticeship in the mystery of the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. Because what does Christ say in book, in chapter 15, verse 15 of John's gospel? I no longer call you servants, but friends. And that's in the context of uh, I am the vine and you are the branches. And in the context, no, um, no one has greater love than this than to lay down his life for his friends. So the fulfillment of Aquinas' use of Aristotle uh, and Augustine uh, is to present the Christian life as an apprenticeship in friendship with God through Christ and the action of the Holy Spirit where we learn in the concrete what it means to will the good for the other, 
to want the other to thrive and to become the person that the other is called to be.